Our scripture reading this evening is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. ...and years, and he explained how he began his devotion to running in the early years. He said, when my son Jonathan was a little boy, he loved to watch me jog. He would sometimes say, can I go running with you, Dad? And I'd say, sure. He'd take off running as fast as his four-year-old legs would take him. And I'd run slower than I could walk which he writes, that's hard to do. So we'd head out about a fourth of a mile from the house, and he'd say, I'm so tired, can we head back home? I'd say, sure. We'd run back toward an imaginary finish line, and it was always amazing how my son would always beat me by one step. And then he says, now, of course, I had the power to totally obliterate my son, to leave him coughing and sputtering in the dust, a speck in the distance, but I restrained my power in order to build a relationship with him. And then he wrote this, a display of power wasn't nearly as important as the relationship between a father and a son. The passage we're going to study tonight is about how God wants to build a strong relationship with us. And he wants us to have a good, strong relationship with other people. In fact, this passage concludes with the golden rule. You probably have known that ever since you were a child do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in a way, it's sort of the backdrop to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Open your Bibles to Matthew 7. That's going to be our text for tonight. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of the chapter. 
If you've got a study guide, you're going to see there's four different points we're going to make, if you can outline this section. The first is this, to understand your relationship with other Christians. We're going to study what Christ wants us to do, what he wants us to know. It's really just, he's, he's fleshing out the whole uh, uh, golden command of uh, loving God and loving others. And it begins with your relationship with other Christians. And he starts here by saying, avoid judgmental words. Look there in verses 1 and 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Rick actually says that if you were to go on a college campus 25 years ago and ask them to quote a Bible verse, more than likely what you would hear most often would be uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. But he said today, if you were to go on a college campus and ask them to quote a Bible verse, more often the sentiment you would hear, if not the exact verse, would be Matthew 7.1, Judge not, lest you be judged. It's the spirit of tolerance that is prevalent in this age group, and in fact in our day and time. And we enjoy taking this verse out of context and really take it to an extreme. But there are times, and we know this, where you have to judge, where you need discernment. Who do you want babysitting your children? Who do you want driving your children to school in that big school bus? Who are you going to vote for in an election? All those things require discernment on our part. But even people who know the Scripture, even if we understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, We must be real. We have a hard time applying it, living it. It's it's tough to do. Our judgmental spirit used in the wrong fashion, it it just goes past a sermon, and it gets us in trouble. Steve Bartman, you ever heard of him? Several years ago, he went to the sixth game of the National League playoffs. He's a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. He had no idea that his name would become like a curse word to all the Chicago Cubs fans. One sports writer said, Bartman became the biggest villain in Chicago history since old lady O'Leary lit the lantern in the shed. The year was 2003. The Cubs were playing the Florida Marlins. One out, eighth inning, three-run lead. Cubs were up five outs away from going to the World Series. Foul ball. Do you remember this? Foul ball was hit toward his direction, the front row of the stand. Steve Bartman stuck his hand out, deflected the ball, kept the outfielder from catching it. To many, that seemed to be the beginning of the end. The next player hit a ground ball to shortstop. The shortstop made an error. The Marlins scored eight more runs, winning the game. They won the next game. They went to the World Series. Fans that were near the scene said this after the incident. Steve Bartman was punched. He had beer tossed on him, peanuts hurled at him. He was escorted away by security while fans yelled obscenities at him. One woman said, we should bash his skull. A man yelled, let let me at him. One Cubs fan suggested they hang him from the Cubs scoreboard. Even the governor of Illinois got in on it. The only person that was nice to him was the governor of Florida. Jeb Bush offered him asylum, said he could have an oceanfront retreat at Pompano Beach for the next three months if he needed to get out of Chicago. But deep down inside, any baseball fan sitting in that spot would have reached out and tried to catch the ball. We like somebody to blame, don't we? We like a scapegoat. We like to point a finger. We enjoy judging. And we all do it. 
But Christ's words have a honing ring to them. For in the same way you judge, you'll be judged. So the way you're talking about that driver ahead of you driving, it comes back at you. The way you judge the comments of a politician, the way you judge the lawn care of your neighbor, the way you judge the fan seated on that row next to you at the ball game. So the starting point of our relationship with other Christians, as he writes about here, is avoid that judgmental words. But the second part is shun hypocritical actions. Hypocrisy is one of the top excuses you hear when people talk about not coming to church. I don't want to go there. That church is full of hypocrites. And Jesus speaks the words of those who would follow him. Look at verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when at the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, some movies, as they portray Jesus' teaching here, they'll, they'll show it in a way like and everybody's laughing and it's kind of comical, and, and I believe that's because it was. He's using a hyperbole. He's exaggerating the graphics nature here to kind of show you how ridiculous it is. And it is funny. This gross exaggeration. It made the point. So for days after, people would be quoting Jesus. Did you hear what he said? You know, let me get that speck out of your eye and you get this plank in your own eye. That was great, wasn't it? They would remember the teaching and they'd laugh about it. But in the middle of their laughter, they would have to get the point. And it happens all the time. You see, we must shun hypocrisy. Even to this day, we can have a tendency to self-righteously point our fingers at everyone else and overlook our own shortcomings. Almost a sadistic joy to pointing out someone else's falls. But yet if we were really serious about helping them, instead of talking to everyone else about them, we would go to them as Jesus tells us to do. So the next time you're telling a story about how you were done wrong, just stop and think. In fact, be, be humble enough to ask a good friend to help you take off the blinders. That's what he's talking about here. And we all have them. Take off the blinders. Be courageous enough to ask for help removing the plank in your own eye. If most or if not every story you tell is about how bad things are happening to you, how everybody else is wrong... Maybe that's revealing of your own heart. Remember Jesus' words. With the same measure you judge, you too will be judged. But we love to speculate, don't we? We've got it all figured out. I'm right. I know what I'm talking about. And we've reduced it to a science. I know why they react the way they do. I know what they're thinking. I know what's in their heart. We don't know what's in their heart. We don't know what they're thinking. Only God knows that. But we act like we do. Valerie Cox, in Matter of Perspective, she told about a time a woman went to an airport, got there early to, to catch her flight, wanted to make sure she got through the process. She came in with a book and, and a package of cookies. She got through the TSA, and she got to her gate, so she sat down and started reading her book. A man came down, sat next to her right, with an empty seat between them, and he started opening the package of cookies. She couldn't believe that he was eating her cookies. She didn't say a word and she just kind of looked over at him and he popped it in her mouth, in his mouth. And so she reached over and she grabbed the cookie and popped it in her mouth and went back and forth until there was just one cookie left. Nobody said a thing. 
He reached over, broke it in half, and offered her half. She was furious. I mean, he didn't even save the last cookie for her. Eventually, she got on the plane, getting settled, reached into her purse, and you're ahead of me. There was her package of cookies. She so jumped to the wrong conclusion. She just knew that those were hers. How could he be so... Yeah, it was her the whole time. And if we're not careful, we can go through life with a Siskel and Ebert mentality. Thumbs up, thumbs down. We see a situation and we quickly pronounce judgment on it. As if that's our job. As if that's what we're supposed to do. We even do it with church. Why can't they get the PowerPoint to work? You know, that was a good lesson, Randy Head, but... And we pick it apart. We do it all the time. You know what I found? Nobody likes to be around a complainer. Isn't that true? Nobody likes to be around someone who's always pointing the faults of everyone else. People would rather be around, not the referee ready to blow the whistle, but somebody who's positive and kind and, and upbeat and encouraging. And here's the reality. We can take the criticism much better... For someone who's also offering a compliment from time to time. Well, Jesus moves from our relationship with Christians. Then he talks about, what about relating to those who are hostile? Look in verse 6. might sound like a strange verse. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. But what does that mean? And what's he saying here? Who are these dogs and what's the message here? I think Jesus is teaching that as you go through life and you're trying to be a Christian, you're going to find some people that you intersect with, that, you, that are in your life, that they're going to be resistant to the gospel. They don't believe like you. In fact, they're going to be resistant to anything you say or do. And it's really a waste of time. It's a waste of your energy to, to try to invite them to church or to share with them your faith or talk to them about Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying here, if you try and you're met with this intense resistance, you just back off. Give them some space. You reassess the situation. You be patient. Maybe look for other unbelievers that you can let your light shine to. But don't keep giving the reverend a chance to rip you to shreds. You see, there's a proper place for judgment or, or, or discernment. We'll talk about that more in the final passage of the Sermon on the Mount. But here he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Think about Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod wasn't interested in spiritual things. Here was the same man that beheaded John the Baptist. All he wanted is to see Jesus do a sign. He wanted a show. He wasn't interested in justice. So when he interrogated Jesus, remember what Jesus said? Nothing. He didn't answer. Because he knew it was one of those situations, and you know you've been there before, no matter what I say, you're going to twist my words around. You're going to use them against me. And Jesus, Jesus didn't say a word. He knew that would be like putting your pearls before swine. Giving that which is sacred to a dog. Paul and Barnabas practiced the same thing. They learned the lesson. Look on the screen in Acts 13, verses 49 and following. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the, from the region. Then verse 51 so they shook the dust from their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. 
And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They didn't stay and, and be difficult. They shook the dust off their feet and moved on. And sometimes we have to do the same thing. See, there are some people that all they want to do is ridicule the gospel. And it may not be your role to change them. Maybe God will soften them at time. But right now, maybe the best thing to do is, you've spoken up, now just remain silent. If you invite someone to come to worship, maybe a special class, and they say, I'm not going to go to that church, leave it be. And don't go the next day and ask them if they changed their mind, because they probably haven't. Maybe life circumstances, maybe coupled with God's spirit, will, will change their heart. I think he's teaching here, don't give the enemies of Jesus an occasion to blaspheme. You know, so many of you work in an environment, a work environment that can be hostile to Christians, where maybe if you do speak or when you do speak, people ridicule you, they don't understand, or maybe even your, your values, your ethics are, are mocked because you don't want to compromise. I think we need to understand that where you work, 40 hours, 50 hours, maybe more, that's where your character is, is tested and, and forged. It's where Christians most often rub elbows with non-Christians. That may be where your light shines the brightest. And, and use discernment with, with how you handle that. But understand, in the workplace, when you're around others who don't believe, it's not your job to judge them. It's not. Sometimes we think it is, but it's not. The goal of the Christian is not to condemn the unbeliever. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12 and 13. Here the Apostle Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge the outside. I think we need to be reminded of that. In fact, I like the quote, I think it was Stephen Brown, who said, Never be surprised when a pagan acts like a pagan. Just chalk it up. That's just life. And we shouldn't be surprised. Your responsibility is not to judge the world. It doesn't mean you stick your head in the sand spiritually and you're not aware of what's going on in the world. I think you need to show discernment and know what's going on. But our responsibility is not to judge them. That's what he's teaching here. It's to let our light shine. Now, if at some point you are on the receiving end of what you might call a spect extraction... If somebody does say something to you, do your best not to be defensive and say, I, but look at all the problems in your life. Who are you to say something to me? Hear the person out. Evaluate what they're saying and pray about it. Maybe even choose to share it with a close Christian friend and say, help me find the truth in this. It hurt. And maybe I'm so hurt I can't see the truth. But ask for help with that. And then make the necessary adjustments. Well, in this section, there's a third relationship. And this one should be the strongest. This is the relationship with God. How is it going with God? How strong is it? You know, this is our prayer month. Maybe this is a test for you. How easy is it to pray? How often are you praying? Maybe this can be a reminder for us. Look at verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask. Don't demand. You ask of God. But sometimes our tendency is not to go to God. We go to everybody else and talk about it and complain and judge. We saying, go to God first. It's fine to have Christian friends and get their input, but don't neglect to build a relationship with your Father. And when you do... You ask, 
And Jesus is stressing the value of prayer. And then he goes on and says, seek. Seek. Don't be passive. Don't just wait for it to happen. Like God's in control, so he's going to do it anyway. You seek for it. You be proactive. You take some steps. You're looking. You're searching. Knock. Don't give up. You keep knocking. In fact, this verse is written in the imperative, the present tense. Really, you could read it this way. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. The persistence is a part of it. I love the next passage. Look in verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to, the, to those who ask him? Parents, isn't it true that we really want to give our kids the best? We want them to be in the best school. They want them to have the best teacher. We want them to have the best start. We want to give them the best gifts, maybe even more than they deserve. We have to watch that. And God specializes that in giving us more than we deserve or need. But he's a wise father. He knows sometimes it's best not to say yes. Just like when your your little child asks for a knife because the big brother's got one, but maybe he's too young. And you know the right thing to do is to say no. In the same way, God knows sometimes that new job, that new this, or that whatever we're asking for may not be best for us. And he may tell us no as well. God searches our hearts to see what we need and delights to give us from his inexhaustible storehouse of blessing. But know what he's talking about here. He's talking about prayer. This communication with God, and it's the key to this vertical relationship. I like the way Clarence Jordan said it. He, He wrote this. When it comes to prayer, it was always a source of constant amazement to Jesus that men drank so sparingly from so great a reservoir. God wants to have a relationship with us. That's first. And then this passage, one more section, is the relationship with people, all people. Jesus shares some words. Again, probably taught from your early years. We call it the golden rule. Look in verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. J. Wallace Hamilton told about a time years ago where there was a gathering of some of the greatest scholars in the world and their goal was to determine a moral code. If we could come up with one thing that would be universally accepted by all peoples regardless of race or religion, what could it be? And they were instructed to to make it as exhaustive as possible but for it to be as concise as possible. And so they put all the thoughts together and they finally got it down to one page. And they worked on it some more, and they got it down to one paragraph, and then they got it down to one sentence, and this is what it said. Treat other people the way you would like to be treated. And then one of them said, isn't that what the golden rule says? In this one sentence, Jesus brilliantly communicated the key to life and relationships. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Everything comes back to this. See, maybe the best way to follow the golden rule is to share Jesus with others. You know, if you didn't know Christ, wouldn't you want somebody to tell you about him? Wouldn't you want somebody to tell you how you can have eternal life, how you can have hope beyond this sin-sick world? See, I tend to agree with those individuals who are praying for some kind of revival in this country. 
But I think it's going to come not from proclamation, but from demonstration. People want to see an authentic life, a life that's changed, not just the right words that are preached and taught, but a life that's transformed. So maybe the starting place will be at the workplace where we talked about earlier. Or maybe the starting place will be in your neighborhood. Or maybe the starting place will be as you interact with other people and you invest and you build time with them. But the best place to start is at home. With the people you're closest to, the ones that matter the most. You have the opportunity to reach out to others. It was Schubert who said, what I possess in my heart, I will share with the world. I began our message talking about Paul Williams jogging. That four-year-old is now a young adult. I think when I read he was 28 years old. The father and son went to the Rocky Mountain National Park. I want to read how Paul described that day. This is the father speaking. We decided to run up a trail to Jim Lake. It's about 1.8 miles long with an elevation gain of about 1,000 feet. The trail ends at 9,000 feet of altitude. We started running. My son Jonathan took off. He left me coughing and sputtering in the dust, a speck in the distance. Then about the time we got to the top of the first rise, I noticed I was catching up. Gradually, I pulled up within a couple hundred yards of him, and before long, I came up beside him. And I said, went too fast, huh? He said, yeah, I guess so. I said, slow and steady wins the race. I may be older than you, but I know how to pace myself. We continued to talk as we ran side by side, but then I noticed something. Jonathan wasn't even breathing hard. In fact, he was barely sweating. He was practicing a principle he had learned long ago, restraining his power in order to continue to build a relationship. And then he said, I ran the rest of the way beside my son with tears streaming down my face. It had become, it had come full circle. You want to build a relationship with others? Read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. Follow his advice. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sometimes we can be so blind that we don't even see the lost right beside us. Sometimes we can be so confident in our own rightness that we run off and leave others in the dust. It takes maturity and some selflessness to slow down for the sake of a relationship. To not leave others behind. And sometimes to get close to people, you have to do just that. Put your goal of, of getting there, or whatever the goal is, you put that aside. You relinquish that, and you reach people. See, the reason to be gracious to others, it ultimately boils down to the fact that God has been gracious to you. And when you know that, and you remember that, that's what helps you to be patient. For some of you, what you need today is to change how you view God Instead of a God with a whistle in his mouth ready to blow it because you stepped out of bounds, you need to realize this is the God who has slowed down. In fact, he came down as a human to show you the way. 
And what's going to happen is when you get in the race with Him, that at the end, when judgment comes, He's going to hold back everything you've ever done and let you cross the line and win. He loves you that much. He wants to save you that much. The reality is, He could have gone off without you. Lots of reasons. He knows all your faults. He knows all your sins. But the relationship, that's what He wants. And that's the good news. On the day of judgment, He'll let you win. If you've never had this kind of relationship with God, swallow your pride. Confess Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Let Him wash you clean in baptism to give you His Spirit living within you so that you can run along with your Father who wants you to win. Won't you come to stand and sing to encourage you?